0: Let's get the show started. So welcome back everyone to Behind the Shield. Uh, My name is Marco Estrella. I'm gonna be your host today. On uh, today's show, uh, we have our panel of experts that will be discussing uh, or dissecting and discussing hot topics from the past few weeks. Uh, We have a guest from Ping Identity with us today who's going to talk to us about trust in an untrustworthy world. And as always, we'll have the audience participation questions towards the end of the show. If you're new to Behind the Shield, welcome, this is a safe space, Uh, no sales pitches, just honest discussion about cybersecurity issues that concern us all, that that we work with every day. So in the next 60 minutes, what we hope to do with this show is to inform you and entertain you a little bit um, so that you become a regular listener and come back every month. If you like what you hear and you would like to listen to previous episodes, you can do so on the show's webpage which is virtualguardian.com slash event. And if you're like me and you like to listen to podcasts on the go, I love to listen to podcasts when I'm driving. I'm always listening to podcasts in the car. You can do so. You can find Behind the Shield on your favorite podcast service. The show's agenda is very simple. Uh, We start with a 30-minute current event discussion, which will be followed by a 15-minute spotlight talk. And then we close out the show. With audience questions, if you're listening to the episode live, feel free to submit your questions in the Q and A section of the Zoom interface. So let's get to it. Let me uh, to help me navigate the hot topics segment. I call upon my trusted uh, cybersecurity expert panel, and today the panel is composed of Patrick Naum, Virtual Guardians CEO. So Patrick helps customers with solutions on how to defend themselves against all manner of cyber threats for the Hello, first time on the bts panel of experts i'm happy to present steve Manuel, solstice's chief enablement officer and that's a different type of ceo steve what is a chief enablement officer can you tell me that in a couple seconds
1: <laughs> Yeah, thank you marco great great to be here first time on the panel and uh loving the conversations uh so really i do i do get that question a lot and it's really when i think about Enablement. I think about execution and enabling my teams. We, you know, we we deliver by the we and not necessarily by the me. Um, and I and I really believe in empowering teams. So uh, I do I do carry that title, and it does get the same kind of question you just asked. So it's a, it's a good good place to be in.
0: Good. And this is your first time on the panel, so uh, you get the uh, the added bonus of giving us the the solstice sixty second elevator pitch. Please
1: absolutely so uh solstice is a esi affiliate we've been a joined the ESI group of companies uh it'll be almost two years ago and we and, and i'm going to talk about our services and practices really from a security perspective given the audience today and the interest in and in, and you know the conversation we have today so i'll start off by talking about uh digital identity um we started that uh, business in early 2007 and we started really in the iga or identity governance and administration. So these are workforce facing users, and you're dealing with, um, you know, attestation, segregation of duties, roles, um, centralizing identity stores and dealing with some small and larger uh, entities, you know, sort of 30 to 50,000 users. And I would say over the last five years, we've been more focused on identity and access management. And that's really for B2C and, and B2B type customers. So these are Millions of identities. Um, we've worked a lot with the financial sector and, and a lot in the telco sector. So, and that's getting into some of the, the topic areas today, like MFA, multi-factor authentication, and a password list is becoming a very uh big conversation with some of the standards like FIDO. Um, and and probably the most other interesting practices around enterprise API, and that's really the conversation around application modernization, cloud and API, lifecycle management. Uh, It's it's really been a natural extension for our customers to think about, okay, I've secured the users and now I wanna secure the services. And I wanna do that in a frictionless way. As you know, the more secure you make something, it tends to be, uh, usability tends to be a problem. So we've worked a lot with our customers about building a lot of mobile experience, you know, tablets, cell phones, uh for for uh enterprise services and then that uh probably the third most important piece is digital intelligence and that started off for us uh around the whole sort of big data analytics and over the last year that's evolved into really two areas um observability which is becoming very very important for customers that are migrating monolithic applications breaking them up to microservices moving them into public cloud and some sort of a hybrid environment and then the other side is uh space you're very familiar which is cybersecurity, security sim or security incident and event management so we've been doing some work in the financial sector cloud is pretty much every one of our customers are on some sort of a journey to the cloud so we're working with them and the last and probably um most interesting service for us is really around agile services so a lot of our customers are very interested in us, not necessarily what we're providing as a solution, but how we do it. So we're very agile centric, very much product thinking. We put complete product teams into into our customers.
0: All right. Thank you very much, Steve. Welcome to the panel. And finally, uh, last but not least, our spotlight guest, Dr. Brandon Williams, Vice President of uh, IM Strategy at Ping Identity. He has agreed to join our panel. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great. Uh, What type of doctorate
2: do you have, Brandon? Can you tell us a little bit about that? I'm very much like a hands-on technologist. Uh, So all of my, like, you know, I'm a very technical person and and all of my sort of work in the space has been self-taught and trained on the job. My degrees are in business. So I have a doctorate of business administration and it's a concentration in business intelligence, which is, you know, data analytics and the fields that go sort of spring up around it and I've had it for uh, eight years now. The field is so much different from when I started, so it's always you know anytime you're doing academics, it's always constant learning and constant application. Absolutely. What's your alma mater? Um, I went to Capella University for my doctorate. i um, in the University of Texas system for my undergrad, and then University of Dallas for my MBA.
0: Okay. All right. Well, welcome, gentlemen, to the panel. So let's get started with the hot topics today. today. Um, Patrick, you're first up on my list, and you know, when I read your topic, when you submitted your topic to me uh, this past week, I was a bit bummed because uh, you're going to talk about, you. T- yeah, talk badly about MFA, which you know I love. So uh, give our audience the details. What did you work on that uh, for us? What do you mean talk
3: badly about MFA?
0: It's <sighs> well, like 99% about-
3: of issues. <laughs>
0: yeah it's for me it's it's uh you know it's the simplest most most easy way what everybody needs so i i don't like hearing it has potentially some work
3: around the flaws so anyway (laughs) thanks thanks marco thanks for the uh the question yeah i mean mfa is like Table stakes, right? If you're running a business today, it protects you against uh, you know, all your credentials being compromised. You know, it, it, it addresses 90, 99% of, uh, of account takeover attacks. However, like everything, it has you know, blind spots, certain blind spots. And to me, what attracted my attention is, is based on the fact that you know, a false sense of security is your worst case scenario in security, right? When you think something is being taken care of and it's not. And I came across an article from Hacker News and basically what it's just identifying is the fact that there's a few blind spots around MFA uh, solutions and they, they concern uh, PowerShell or remote execution or remote desktop, not the remote desktop protocols that the MFA interacts with that. But anything that has to do with ex- executing commands uh, remotely. Um, it's one of the weaknesses because the protocols. You know, I don't want to go into too much details, but the protocols were developed prior to MFA technologies back uh, back in the day. So essentially, what this this creates is a situation where if you're if you're exposing certain services to, to, to command prompt uh, administration, they could be subject to credential. Uh, if, if their credentials are compromised, you could penetrate uh, servers and workstations that way, and then move laterally within your environment, therefore bypassing the MFA uh, authentication. So it creates all sorts of situations. in there's a blind spots, um, you're, you know, we know that 61% of, uh, of, of issues in terms of, uh, you know, account takeovers are related to credential theft. So it it's a lot of, a lot of, It covers a lot of use cases that could be problematic. The other thing as well is that, and this is not necessarily good policy, a lot of administrators use the same uh, system or service passwords on-prem and for SaaS and cloud applications. So you can imagine if you have someone coming in uh, compromising uh remote command uh, shells executing commands and could also take take control uh, of the cloud environment at the same time for organizations that are structured that way with the same credentials so it's it's created a a whole area a whole blind spot but also i you know it it also highlights the fact that you need to design your your network architectures in a way to prevent that um so essentially zero trust frameworks are critical to prevent lateral movement, leveraging micro segmentations and you know network isolation and those types of uh, solutions. But also there's a new area that's uh, being developed is unified identity protection. So to place a piece of software that handles the authentication between the old protocols and MFAs and has this additional validation. Therefore, I would say replicating functionally what an MFA plat- situate uh, an MFA platform will give you. Uh, and it actually sits in the middle between MFA and your, your, uh, your protocols. So there are solutions towards that. I just wanted to highlight the fact that if you're deploying MFA out there, it's not going to solve all your issues. There's a few blind spots that we need to be aware of, especially in the context of remote control or remote commands, uh, for sysadmins running their environment remotely. Okay, so you mentioned
0: kind of a solution is to uh, zero trust. You mentioned it as as a, as a solution, but is that the only thing aside that CISOs can do um, to, to, to to fix this problem?
3: Well, even even before that, you need to deploy a proper PAM to to map out your privileged access, right? Who has access to what? What are those accounts? Number one, so an inventory and management. But like I mentioned earlier, unified identity protection that sits in the middle, making sure you have proper micro segmentation and all your other me- mechanisms to prevent lateral movement or at least identify lateral movement. So those are all things you could put in place to to mitigate uh, this, uh, this issue. Okay. All right. Awareness Brandon-
0: is key here. Brendan, Steve, anything to that you'd like to add on that? Or I mean, the only thing I add is that it's also
2: about um, using risk in context, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, MFA was sort of a. I, somebody presented this to me yesterday, and I really have been thinking about it quite a bit since then. He said you know, MFA was really designed initially to kind of be like a passwordless solution. Right? It was kind of designed to like remove the password from the critical part of the authentication by creating something else that we could rely on. It was out of band, but there's you know, it, it maybe even sort of ruined our, our pathway to passwordless and elongated our pathway to passwordless to get there because we've been relying on this other tech. Um, and, That's you know, there's high and low tech ways to use it.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. We see it can be seen as a crutch in some cases.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So we're too reliant on it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. Good All
3: right.
0: Point. Thanks. Uh, let's move on. Second point, Second topic today. Uh, Steve you're up next you've looked you looked into T-mobile's most recent security breach I know that these guys have had several in the past years um, but it seems to be an indicator of uh, Enterprises grappling with API attack vector uh, so apis as an attack vector so can you fill us in uh with the details
4: please Security and observability are crucial for the success of your company. But do you have all the information you need to protect your organization from potential threats? Introducing our latest ebook from Solstice, Convergence of Observability and Security, the benefits and approaches to better and safer applications and services. With this comprehensive guide, you'll gain valuable insights into the latest security and observability practices, including how to detect and prevent attacks, Gain in-depth visibility and secure your data. Don't leave your company's security to chance. Download our ebook today and gain the knowledge you need to stay ahead of the game. Visit our website now at solstice.ca. Sure. So uh, it's a great
1: it's a it's a great conversation because we're you know with with some of our telco customers we're having these exact same conversations. Uh, a couple of things I noticed about this issue. As you pointed out, there's been multiple breaches there dating all the way back to, you know, 2021 with 48 million, uh, you know, account numbers, service plan details leaked out, they had a breach 20 in 2020, and one in uh, 2019. So my observations here obviously, without knowing the root cause, and it's, they won't necessarily tell you what exactly they just said it was a bad actor, but we don't know if that bad actor was inside, outside. But I, the first thing that I noticed was they they didn't detect the problem until January 5th of this year, yet it happened in November of last year. So, you know, obviously visibility, operational visibility, is potentially a, a concern here. So, why didn't they see it? Do, do do they not know who are the consumers of their APIs? Do they don't do they not have the correct security policies around APIs? When you think of things like DevSecOps, where security is becoming tightly integrated within a developer a devops process are they actually creating you know automated testing to test for things like this so what we see is is you know do you know who's consuming your apis and then when you have sort of east west traffic where you have apis calling other apis in your network it becomes a very complex environment when you're looking at a complete request reply so um you know, the other thing I thought about is I don't believe in the United States that there's a federal law like we have in Canada with PIPEDA, right? So if there was stronger regulation in place, would that in fact cause, you know, uh, this industry to behave more appropriately? Because in Canada, it's always a topic of conversation, user-private, you know, protecting customer confidentiality in its data um, is, is front and center. Um, it also could be the fact that uh, they didn't have the correct security policies to find. So, you know, uh, the most concerning thing is the reputation. The customers trust their identities. You know, some of that information, that comp, that that privacy information gets leaked out. Um, so there's a reputation hit for, for T-Mobile and who knows what the long-term impacts of that will be. Uh, giving that, I think today they're at, um, I think something like 134 million, 135 million customers, right? So they're growing dramatically, like most of the telcos in the US are. So um, love to see more regulation, love to understand the application architecture. Were they deploying identity or some sort of API lifecycle management solution, like typically what you see with an API gateway, where you could govern the lifecycle of APIs in a centralized regulated way and take that away from the developers. We all know that developers write APIs all day long and they're sort of just there, but not governed very well. So it would be interesting to to understand what their application architecture really was there. So not not a good, let's just hope there's no more for, for T-Mobile at at this point in time. We uh,
0: at Virtual Guardian, we do a lot of uh, penetration testing um, on, on web applications and, and APIs seem to be coming very, very uh, into demand and um, We see APIs everywhere now. Do you think that? uh, Do you have any suggestions for our listeners who are worried about their own web applications and their APIs? Anything that? Any like maybe a quick tip
1: that you can give them? Well, the one, the first one is the very first one is the one you just mentioned. You know, vulnerability and penetration testing. Figure out if you have a problem, Um, and you could use something like the OWASP Top Ten list right, um, which which you know they release that every three or four years. It's a good place to start. We use it internally. Uh, I would also look at you know, do you have a proper API gateway solution in place to manage something on a large enterprise uh, like this company? Do they have some way to govern their apis? Okay. Uh, I would understand their data, their API security policies. What do they look like? Are they robust? Are they being uh, integrated? I would then look at the DevSec model and, and understand is security and writing automated security tests. Is that part of development? We don't typically we see security as a bit of an add-on at the end. Exactly. Uh, so and cool. then um, embrace security, right? Uh, treat it foremost and, and upfront in your design. That, that will be just a few that I would recommend. Uh, I don't want to
3: put Brandon on the spot there, but Brandon, could you put your, X, uh, you know, your end-user experience <laughs> are part of your career and shed some light on, on what, the, what the best practices in the enterprise.
2: Yeah, I know. I was thinking about this as you were describing some of this stuff. And The biggest problem that we had at the last job was really discovery and knowing what was out there. Um, and adding to it, when you start to look at cloud platforms like GCP or AWS, and you start putting uh, your different APIs in those platforms, it becomes really, really challenging to understand you know, where everything is. Uh, We actually had an incident at my last company where, without getting into too much detail, there was an old API that didn't actually work for um, like any sort of interaction, but it would absolutely, absolutely let you do authentication testing. So somebody found that, realized it wasn't being protected by a credential stuffing service, and started pounding it with, you know, a credential stuffing attack. Right. So had we had better understanding and knowledge of the traffic that was touching that very edge. We could have seen that and stopped it, but I think that's where we start to run into problems that it's everybody's using APIs. It's a great way to connect. It's a great way to sort of create a chain of value. Um, But you do have to, you know, you have to understand that you're playing with fire a little bit and really do the the work behind it to make sure it's okay.
0: Okay, great. Good comment, guys. Thank you, Steve, for your topic. Um, We're gonna move on to topic three, which is actually mine. Um, So, there's a there's a story that's been going on for a couple of months. Um, it started in the U.S. in in December when uh, the U.S. Senate passed a bill to ban TikTok. So I'm going to talk about a little bit about that. Um, that move was picked up here in Canada, uh, as it often happens. So our federal federal government uh, picked up picked it up, and then a few days later, some provincial governments, including province of Quebec where where I am right now and, and Patrick as well, um, banned the app on their employees' phones. So I have like uh a, a little bit of guilt with this story because I'm I'm a user of TikTok. And Shame apparently I know that's it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Everybody's like, you know, we're we're kind of being shunned for using an app which is supposedly a tool of a foreign agent, okay, and everybody knows that we're talking about China here, to to spy on citizens. Uh, And I'm contributing to that because I'm using it and I I share a couple of videos with my my friends and family. So, you know, and then I follow... uh, So a lot of cybersecurity pundits here locally have been talking about it and they've been critical of the government saying, well, you know, banning this is... Is like putting a uh, like a bandaid on a on a on a crack on a dam. You know, it's it's like it's like a slap on a wrist. It, it's not really going to do anything. It's kind of like a, a pathetic ban. You know, to paraphrase. So banning the the, the public work the, the the workforce public workforce from using it is not going to do much. So much more concerning are the younger people using the app and who are less self conscious of cybersecurity. Um, they just share, 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 um, with, with, without regards, they don't care about VPNs. They don't care about, you know, security measures. So that's where we should put our focus. This is what the cybersecurity pundits are saying. And then you, you have the other side of the, if I can give a little bit, the other side of the coin, people saying, well, banning, when government starts banning things, never a good idea. You know, you have have to be careful. It's a slippery slope. And what about the First Amendment? Aren't we allowed to have free speech? And then you have all that, those things. But let me just come back a little bit. Why is it considered a dangerous spying app? So, so the, there's an article um, with a researcher, or I should say the research generated several articles, um, where this gentleman uh, found out that the the JavaScript and the, the code behind this, the, the the app has key logging capabilities. So basically, anything that you, you, you type and anything that you tap on your phone, I have the phrase right here. Where's my phrase? I quote from the article The TikTok subscri- iOS subscribes to every keystroke happening on a third party website rendered inside the app. So essentially, yeah, when we accept the terms and conditions blindly, like we always
3: do, well, that's we activate all this
0: stuff. Exactly nobody reads those things even less the teenagers and so um what i wanted to know from you um because you know i want to have some credibility in my job um and um i should whatever's remove left it. of it <laughs> i want to remove it oh, thank yeah. you Patrick. <laughs> i opened the door on that one yeah. so um yeah, but I can't. I can't kick the habit. I, you know, I enjoy too much. I'll need a twelve-step program probably to get off that app. But where do you? How do you see it? Is it should we ban it? Should we remove it?
3: Is it a good first step? It's a large-scale experiment in social engineering. Things you're passionate about, Marco. You know the ability to. Talk nicely to people, show them the next shiny object, and convince them to give you access to whatever you need. Well, we all failed that experiment because that's what it is. They created a, a shiny object that caters to our reptilian brain and gets gets get, gets us addicted in exchange of giving away control of all our our data and lives. Listen, uh, as long as it, us humans keep doing that and reacting that way, we're we're going to be in trouble. So uh, a failed uh, experiment, that's what it is, by a country that would not even allow that. Well, they don't want competition, so they do that themselves to their citizens, but they won't let a company do it on their own land. But yeah, send it over to where people do what what they want. Right, Right, and we're acting like... Facebook and and
0: uh, and whatever other apps, social apps yeah. out there, react like they're not doing almost the exact same thing, right? But this one is a a Chinese foreign thing, and and you know, when you think about it, they're they're concerned that it's a foreign nation controlling this this media, but then again, we have uh, an Australian person owning Fox News and and Wall Street Journal. And we have a South African owning Twitter. Nothing is banned here, and we know that these. Oh, cause,
3: uh, cause Elon is a South, South African now. Is that Absolutely, a he's a South African. I of know course. he's born there, but I mean, Brandon, weigh in, man. We, I know you're reaching, <laughs> jump in.
2: No, I mean, I think, I think you know, Marco said it exactly right, which is, you know, the campaign against TikTok was largely fueled by facebook and others who are doing the exact same thing like if you are if you're doing something inside the context of an app like using a browser inside the context of that app you are subject to whatever that app wants to do inside there right so that you can quickly see that like for example if you're on reddit and you click on a reddit uh, Facebook link for some reason if it tries to render in the browser you might have to log in otherwise you go to the app and then you're outside of that context right so it's I think it's putting it in the right context and spin to understand where the actual risk is but it's not like there are other companies doing it I feel like if we're going to tackle that
3: we should sort of look here first to come up with some solid stuff to tackle it and that's how the hackers work, right? They, they embed themselves in an application and gain privileged access from that application. Yeah. We're, we're, it's the same model, but we're just authorizing it. And the hacker, we're, we're upset about it. Exactly. I,
1: I find it interesting in Canada that, you know, the, the, the federal government response was around privacy, right? We have the Office of the Privacy Commissioner investigating. And I wonder if the generation that's using and consuming TikTok, do they really care that much about privacy? You know, that's a like, that's and then, you know, some people using terms like, oh, this is a national security issue. And I go, really? Like, sometimes perception is reality for people. And uh, but you're right. It seems like uh, the other social media players out there are getting a, a, a pass on this. And for some reason, we focused on TikTok. Yeah,
0: oh, yeah. exactly. And uh, you mentioned, Steve, when you did your hot topic, like the the need for a little bit more regulation and that is exactly the way i feel if it really truly was about cybersecurity and privacy right wouldn't our north america us us canada be implementing some sort of gdpr here a little bit more yeah. stringent cybersecurity control so which and i just mentioned the word control is it more about control or the loss of control to be putting at some sort of GDPR here. You know, less yeah. less able to spy, less uh, Patriot Act, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. I don't know. Um, I just have I to mention- move the
3: needle a little more, right? Not necessarily bring it at the, at the end of the spectrum, but right now we're completely open yeah. and uncharted territory. We just have to tighten it a little bit. No, I don't say you can't tighten it too much, but a little bit more. Okay. Um, so I mentioned at the beginning
0: of the show that I uh when we were chit-chatting just right before we started that I I hadn't hit the bottom of the rabbit hole yet. And that's how I feel. I'm going to keep looking into that because I think it, this story is not going to go away. I think it's going to especially that now it's going to be voted on by the House um, and eventually the president there in the U.S. So is it going to pass? Is it going to stay? What's going to happen? I'll let you know maybe in the, at the next Behind the Shield. So Thank Mark, you very Mark, much. I know now, yeah.
1: I know I know who to ask for about the latest TikTok hot topic. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> call me
0: calm. No problem.
1: <laughs>
4: It's not a disaster for your business when you're ready with a disaster recovery plan. In the event of a major disruption, minimize your downtime and impact on your bottom line through a quick recovery of systems. Let ESI's digital resilience experts help you with an IT continuity plan that supports your critical business functions. Unplanned outages happen. ESI will ensure your business is ready. Contact us at esitechnologies.com.
0: So we're going to move on to our spotlight talk, Uh, gentlemen. Thank you very much for your insight, guys. That was good. Uh, Nice hot topic segment. Um, So let me uh, pass over the mic to uh, Brandon. So um, for those who don't know, uh, Dr. Brandon Williams, I mentioned he was vice president of um, IAM Strategy at Ping Identity. So Brandon has over 25 years of experience in cybersecurity, technology, and business. His specialty is navigating complex landscapes, be it compliance, security, technology, or business, and finding innovative solutions to promote growth while reducing risk. Brandon's talk today is titled Fostering Collaboration to Build Trust in an Untrustworthy World. So Brandon, the next 15 minutes are yours. Take it away. All right. Thank you, Marco.
2: So for the next 15 minutes, uh, I'm going to talk about trust, uh, something that is inherently part of our lives. It's something that we value in the interactions that we have. And I want to attempt to use some really visually engaging words for those of you listening to the audio only portion of the podcast. Um, so as businesses continue to do best in digital to drive outcomes, security professionals, CISOs, other people that are involved are increasingly playing a central role in building trust with users. And it's both internal and external to the firm, and they do it through innovative security strategies that enhance protection without sacrificing experience. But in a borderless world, borderless digital world with rapidly evolving threat landscape, much as we talked about with the APIs, how can professionals overcome the organizational and resource challenges to secure that trust? CISOs need to find some common ground that fosters stakeholder collaboration, and in the case of building trust with users, it all starts with identity. So let's talk a little bit about how professionals can use identity to establish collaboration um, across uh, across the enterprise to develop and execute innovative security strategies that build trust with with every user. So what are the main challenges that we now typically face when we're trying to incorporate trust-building activities as part of the strategies? One of them is that digital journeys are increasingly becoming more complex and elaborate. Uh, this has expanded the threat landscape, right? So it's led to more threat surface and more channels to secure. And this makes knowing who your users are and what resources they are accessing more important than ever. Um, and all of that applies to both enterprises and workforces, employees and their end users and uh, interact with brands and their customers. Uh, so COVID kind of uh, accelerated this paradigm shift, right? So it led to this explosion of people working from home. All of us were probably doing it. Some of us still are. Um, organizations were suddenly faced with new challenges related to monitoring and securing their remote workforces. Companies that already had a remote workforce generally had a good way to do this, uh, but it became a scale problem, right? So instead of having, you know, maybe 10% of my workforce at home, it was 100 percent or 90%. On the customer side, it really significantly accelerated. So, you know, as a result, customers were forced to get uncomfortably comfortable with pushing more of their interactions to digital channels. And this was the case for both with, uh, with companies with remote workforces, uh, as well as the B 2 C on the Siam side, the customer identity and access management side. And In fact, in order for many customers to just simply continue to thrive or, or even just survive, they had to come up with creative ways to reengage with their customers in that digital manner, right, and do it safely. Now, for me, I generally prefer a digital first interaction, and that's kind of where I gravitate to. So. I think that that was a huge benefit to all of us who really do value a digital first or a strong digital interaction because it made the, the sort of uh, rules around the interaction shift into what I can control and how I want to approach that to the extent that I can with the technology that I operate, right? Um, and it's also worth mentioning that uh, for established companies, the biggest, ch- biggest challenges often come with managing legacy systems and technologies. I came from banking, so I was very familiar with the legacy interactions and legacy systems and technologies and trying to overlay modern compute systems on top of them that was quite the challenge so all of this you know ultimately created more opportunities for organizations to win or lose their end users trust at every stage every and any stage of that identity journey So given that backdrop what are the biggest opportunities to to build this trust. right? So, and For us as security professionals, influence how the organizations are gonna work. And it really is through championing change that matters all the way through a firm's value stream. Uh, for example, by choosing to focus on the customer experience through a dynamic uh, friction, meaning I want to introduce friction when you're doing things that are risky or remove friction that's not needed when you're not. Uh, making security visible to end users is, is, a, is a key thing. Um, and so like the, the, the change aspect is such a critical piece, but that, that dynamic friction is where I think the, on the security spectrum is where we all want to be from a security perspective. I want security to work and I don't necessarily want my end user to notice it to the extent that I can do that is where I win and make that experience better. That one exception is, for example, in banking, you know, if you're going to all of a sudden add a new payee to your online bill pay, I probably want to do some risk calculations and maybe add a little bit of friction, not only to signal to you, an authorized user, that you're doing something that can affect your, your well-being, uh, but also to a, an attacker to create a roadblock that they would have to jump through. So, an example of how trust could be earned is by going passwordless. Now, passwordless is something we kind of hit on in the roundtable. Um, it's a question I get a ton right now, and I think you know it all stems from everybody's got a different definition of what passwordless actually means and what it means to them. And we also, by the way, whether you have legacy or not, we have systems that inherently require something like a password and will not function uh, with the level of security that you want without it. So you know, as an example, if you're a big Mac shop, you know that Vault has to have a password. There are some alternatives that are popping up. But you know, ultimately, there still is a, a password that's there. And if you rely on Active Directory, you know, Windows Hello is great. But if you rely on Active Directory it still has a password there. Whether it's used or not, it's still there, right? So as we, we adopt these authentications for their employees, we find that uh, companies who do this, they lower their security risks and enhance worker, worker productivity. Um, it also significantly improves customer experiences by making them uh, more seamless and that online access more secure. So and if you're looking for ways to explore this, figure out like, how do I help um, accelerate a passwordless journey in my own firm? Something to really look at uh, as silly as it sounds is how many help desk calls do you get around password resets or problems with authentication that deal with a password? And if the number is going to be greater than one, we, we are, we're headed to zero. We know this. Um, that was part of how, um, we at Ping were, were sort of building business cases around how do we roll this out for us? Like we're an identity company. We should be leading the industry. So let's make sure we know how to do it. Um, and it was quite a challenging journey, even for a company the size of us, right? But this is how you, you build trust. By consistently delivering those positive end user experiences with customers, you're earning earning that trust improves engagement, it lowers abandonment rates, and ultimately can drive higher revenue. So for employees, it's less time resetting passwords, entering passwords, dealing with all the bad behaviors that um, you know we we sort of created in the early 2000s with things like well, you need to have at least an eight-character password, and random is good, and add all the symbols, and you know the joke that we usually tell is. Everybody's passwords are based on the same formula, right? Like it's everyone starts with a capital letter, and it's usually some proper name or some theme in their life. Maybe it's a pet, maybe it's uh, a child, maybe it's you know just a favorite place that they have. They type that in there, and then because they need numbers in there, their complexity is going to be you know like zero three two three. Because I just rotated my password on in March of 2023. Then of course everybody always adds the same special character at the end. It's an exclamation point, right? So. Those behaviors around forcing all that password changing, enforcing complexity, and just makes the whole system inherently more insecure because of the things that our lizard brains do to try to gain back or claw back some of that productivity that we lose by dealing with something like passwords. Right? So um, you can you can nurture this. Um, and you can do it by drilling down on just the login and authentication step of that identity journey. and there's even more opportunities to build trust. and and it also sort of moves out of the next step, which is authorization, which is a big one as well. It's not just about authentication, but once you hit through, what are you actually authorized to do? And so this is uh, my favorite couple of pages in the deck, right? So, it's talking about orchestration orchestration is something you can use to accelerate building trust with users even more right it removes friction it ties all these things together and it can do help you build trust by improving your user experience so an example of that would be application integration this is a pretty low level example but i think it's really uh, important to sort of set a bar that we can all easily grasp right so companies now use an average of 976 applications with only 28 of them, 20% of them being integrated into an overall authentication scenario, right? Why? Well, because of technology and resource limitations, you know, it's easy just to throw usernames and passwords up there and tell people that they have to use it because everybody knows how to do that. There's a lot of um, hard-coded components as well. And, and sometimes when you have limited developer resources, you may not have the time or ability to integrate into centralized identity management systems. So they don't allow you to test those user experiences either. So this is something that um, I really gravitated towards when I think about how to build a good orchestration or build a good experience for a user. You have to be able to test it. You have to be able to use A-B testing to see how it works in the real world. Um, Humans by themselves sometimes aren't the best at, at predicting or we have a hard time predicting how humans will react. It's something that I'm fascinated in. And I use that. uh, I do research a lot of that stuff when I'm building different types of things around security, but it's really helpful to observe them when they're doing the thing that you want them to do. What gets them engaged the best? Um, I think actually e-commerce does a fantastic job of this, right? Because they want to remove any friction, any step that is in between you uh, joining the website and entering in your credit card. Once you enter in your credit card, Then we'll start looking at fraud and we'll start looking at other background stuff. But our goal in e-commerce is to get to that place where you enter a payment and I see that it's correct. I've done a basic authentication authorization on that. right? So when I get to that spot, that's when I know that I'm I'm in a position to create that interaction with the customer. But if I do something along the way, like for example, if I put in an address verification check, I may learn that I have higher abandonment and the fraud rates don't actually go up if a user doesn't do that step. So if I'm e commerce I don't want them to enter their address to secure the payment necessarily. Or at least I don't want to take the address and run it against a fraud check because sometimes people move and you might get a flag on the ABS check that comes back. I'll use other factors to determine if I think I'm going to lose money on this particular deal. So user experience testing is a huge benefit of of this orchestration because it does speed up development cycles. right? It speeds up your ability to optimize and iterate on your identity-related implementations and use cases because instead of going from a complicated and technical requirement doc, which significantly slows down those cycles, you can bring both IT and the business together in a low-code, no-code orchestration platform, drag-and-drop interfaces, intuitive UI to make it as smooth as possible. Um, when I was at the bank, I was killed for this type of technology uh, to give to our user experience people and say, look, you guys you guys do it. I, I don't need to have development to redesign an interface on a login screen for you. You can do all of it there and you have your login flows. Do you want to integrate another fraud provider? Do you want some more signals? Do you want to include social logins? No problem. You drag, drop, integrate, boom. That's what I want you to do as a, as a user experience person uh, and a digital channel person at the bank. I don't necessarily want you writing BRDs and sending it down to you know, the depths of the development organization, knowing that your BRD today results in a product in 18 months. So there's three ways to build trust through identity in, in our view of things. First is improving those digital uh, transactions, right? So leveraging identity to rapidly evolve customer experiences to meet that increased digital demand and outpace your competition, the second one is tackle those legacy legacy systems. Boy, I, I lived with that at the bank. You can't get away from it if you uh, you know. It seems like day one of being in an IT organization is the best day. Day two is when you start to have legacy tech of some form or fashion that you have to work around as you're continuing to make improvements, right? So being able to tackle and overcome those limitations by having solid integrations with them, and then obviously the last piece is optimizing that user experience that we were talking about. It's leveraging orchestration to test and optimize uh, end user experiences on the fly. So I really appreciate you guys listening and I'd love to see questions and pass it back
4: to Marco. Are you enjoying Behind the Shield? Enjoy it more without commercials. Watch us live without interruption by registering for our virtual event each month. Visit virtualguardian.com slash event and check out what's planned for the next Behind the Shield. Remember, when you're behind the shield, you're ahead of the game.
0: Thank you, Brandon. Very nice talk. Very interesting point of view about the uh, the trust. I have we have actually several questions coming in um, while you were talking. So the first one here is: How do you see the recently introduced passkey initiative from Apple, Google, and company affecting the IAM landscape in the short and long
2: term? So I saw that question come in, and I didn't. I was one of the things that I got distracted a minute because I got really excited about that question. Okay. So, you know, right. I think pass keys are fantastic. Now, I also think there is a caveat. There is a, an asterisk to this. Okay? Pass keys for personal use are absolutely wonderful because it definitely is that good step to strong authentication and removing the password from the equation for me logging into um, you know, buy something on a website or you know, conduct a trade. For the corporate side, there's a little bit of a catch we all have to kind of think about it. how that's the context of how the passkey is generated. So in the Apple world, when you generate a passkey, it's generally synced to your iCloud account, which means that if me from a corporate person am leveraging that passkey for you to get access to corporate resources, I am now dependent on you doing the proper things with your personal iCloud account to make sure that you've secured it. And that you don't use that to sign into Apple and on your kid's iPad, which means now that passkey can move its way down there, right? So I think it's something that there are a lot of different ways we can look at it. And depending on the ecosystem that you're in, it can be you know great. And you may say, hey, I'm accepting all the risks of that because it's a better option than what I have today. But I do think that this is the thing we've been waiting for. Like, this is the thing that's really going to modernize uh, and now that both browser manufacturers and operating system manufacturers have really embraced this, that's what's really going to
0: help us launch this thing forward. Okay. Cool. We have uh, a kind of a follow-up uh, to that one. Um, is it tied to mass adoption by the independent software developers?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I will say that I'm a huge FIDO fan. I've got um, our favorite you know, hardware tokens that everybody uses. I, I literally have of them here, and I think I was joking with our CIO the other day because was like, "Man, I should try one of those out." And I'm like, "I think I have one in the box. I haven't even opened in my drawer." And I showed it to him. Right. So I love them because they they represent the best type of authentication, in my opinion. Right. But not still not that many websites support them. Like tech savvy websites do, um, and I'm very thankful that you know Google does and Facebook does and Dropbox and other services that would have information that people would want to fish. But you know, I still can't use it in a majority, I think almost all of my financial services accounts, and I understand the reason why because I lived on the on that other side of the world, and what the management would be. But it really does come down to now that it's easy in the browser, and the browser prompts you like it's it's really a fantastic experience in the modern browser. It's just up to the software developers on the other side to enable that feature, and if they're using a modern identity platform, it literally is push a button, and then you know you may have to make a couple of adjustments, but if I
0: enable that feature, it's there and it will automatically work. Okay, thank you. I have another question here from the audience, uh, William. Uh, from William, William says, uh, "Great session, guys. I was curious to see how you feel that a physical layer, a physical access layer, like YubiKeys keys, fit into a company's MFA strategy. Is it recommended best practice, or more niche for specific type of organizations?" So I would say that with any decision or discussion
2: around a security control or an authentication control, it all comes down to a risk-based decision that has to happen with the business. So it like in certain cases, 100%, there are certain people in every single organization that should have a FIDO token. And that's what they should use for authentication. Um, I use it personally, and, but I also understand that for me, I'm a nerd about this stuff. So I love this, and I have my army of UBTs and, and other hardware keys, and I use those all the time, right? When i when I'm able to use them. But it is uh, in sort of some people I've heard say, "Well, it feels like a step back, Brandon, because in the old days we used to have these tokens hanging off our keychains, and then we got away from it by using our phones, and now we're seeming to go backwards." Um, and it is something you have to keep up with. There's also this notion that. You know, if I use a strong authenticator tied to my phone, whether it's FIDO or not, there are certain jurisdictions in the world where employees don't want to use their own personal technology. And companies also don't want to buy more phones than they have to. So there's that alternative to say, okay, fine, if you don't want to use uh, the phone that you have that we've approved for, for use with our authentication, we'll send you a hardware key, but you're now responsible for that hardware key and you have to replace it if you lose it, right? So I absolutely think that they play a huge role in any uh, authentication strategy. I don't necessarily think that every employee contractor or temporary worker needs to have one.
1: I, I've seen that, Brandon, as well. The, you know, sort of the economic side, which you kind of alluded to is, you know, managing and maintaining hardware tokens can be expensive for an organization. Yep. Obviously, with B2C, you never see that because it's just it's just uncaught. it just never works. But then on the flip side you have to deal with all these authenticator apps. You could have like four or five of them running on your device, you know, because they don't, they don't necessarily promote a single authenticator. You can use many, right? So you get a sprawl in that environment. So there becomes maintenance on that side as well. So, so the kind of hard token versus soft token argument.
2: Yeah. And I think it does come down to, you know, how do you want to support it? It really is an operations question, right? So at the bank, we wanted to do a program Called bring your own authenticator for customers. Like I didn't really care if you had a FIDO token or if you were gonna use push in our mobile app or if you're gonna use Google TOTP. I didn't really care because I had enough other controls, but I wanted you to be able to bring something that you wanted to work with that you were comfortable working with and that you already built a system around. Problem is there's so many of those systems right now, and yeah. like <laughs> and to be able to support that becomes a training issue because now. What if the TOTP doesn't work? What if the Google Authenticator doesn't work? Or what if the YubiKey doesn't work? Well, that's going to generate a support call. And so somebody has to be able to answer that call and be able to help that customer get through. Otherwise, you just shifted the problem, right? You, you still have this massive cost thing that's sitting there. So people that are really good at operations excellence and can you know handle stuff like
0: that will do really well doing stuff like that. Uh, good point, Steve. Um, another question. You talked about uh, an untrustworthy world, and I'd like to know. Um, this question comes from me, so I'm, I'm kind of building it as I go, but I'd like to know how a CISO can shape, uh, the organization's, uh, trust building in that type of world that you described in your, in your spotlight talk.
2: So I think ultimately there's the realization that trust doesn't really exist uniformly. It's difficult to create. Right. Um, even in personal interactions, right? Social engineering is there. You talking to somebody that you don't know or that you maybe just met and they could be leading you down a pathway that's great for them and harmful for you. And you may not know because you haven't established that trust, right? So I think it's important to to retain a little bit of the the skepticism and realizing that attackers are probably in your environment in some form or fashion. So if you can approach it from that perspective, then you can start to think about how do I carve out areas of trust that I know will add value to the business? I don't really want to talk like the zero trust thing because I'm not so sure that that works beyond the marketing. Um, Any anybody who's really like dug in and tried to implement what's there sort of realizes that well, it's not really zero trust. It's more like least trust. You know, that's it's it's the it's an asymptote that you can never really approach. You're going to get close, uh, but there's also a diminishing return element to that as well you're going to end up spending way more money trying to get there than you're going to get value and utility out of it, right? So for me, and what we talked to at CISOs, having, granted, I work for Ping Identity, right? But having strong identity and strong quality identity and interactions and continuous authentication and authorization is one key, uh, key
0: element to building that level of trust. Uh, and uh, in, and this, um, this link between identity and trust you know, how, how can the identity, in the, in a nutshell, like, how um, can the identity, how can the CISO use the identity to build that trust in a, like as quickly as possible? Like, is that um, how can identity help a CISO build trust? Is
2: what I'm True. getting at. Yeah, so I would I would say that like there's a number of ways to do that. The first one is making sure it's integrated into all the applications that people are going to use. Make okay. sure that you have really good identity proofing so that you know who the person is that's using that identity and you're, you have a good assurance that that's the authorized person. And, you know, ultimately you can't just put all of your eggs in the protection basket, right? Like you have to spend on, you know, prevention and protection as well, i sorry, prevention as well as detection and like watching the activity that's happening and recovery almost equally, right? Like you really need to be focused on all three of those things. So we would oftentimes uh, say, look, we can't, Roll a patch on a particular piece of software at this exact moment, but we can watch for specific types of traffic if somebody does try to exploit something that would be there and take countermeasures to try to stop it, right? So it's that making sure that you're not just trying to prevent all the things that you actually do look for detection, you can react and
0: respond to detection as well. Very good. That's, that does it for customer questions. My questions also. Uh, Patrick, Steve, anything to add?
1: I had a question, I guess, for 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 Brandon. When I, when you were talking there, I was most interested in your view of when I talk to CISOs. They they also seem to talk a lot about treating identity as a business enabler. So then the value of the trust relationship is even more important versus just in the security context. And that value of trust, like how how do you view uh, identity as a business enabler? So
2: it's, it's really sort of tying in everything that that person does together and creating that larger picture to understand. So a very rudimentary example, um, when you do business with your bank, they build a fraud profile on you. They know where you like to spend money. They know the types of amounts that you typically spend. They're watching your activity when you're logging into their online or mobile banking and they're building profiles and what they think is safe and what they think is not safe. Um, and I mean, we've, we've all bought something or traveled somewhere and tried to use a card and have it be declined and get a phone, you know, text message, hey, was that actually you? Yes. No. Okay, go ahead and rerun the transaction. Right. So it's all of that together. It's almost like this constant continuous authentication, which by the way, does sound a little big brothery. And that's why I think we need to get privacy rules and regulations to help understand how you can still get the value from that without sort of infringing on specific privacy rights that might exist. But that's what it means to me. It means like taking every attribute that you can to learn about a user's behavior, building profiles, and then being able to sort of build trust upon the fact that, yes, this person is acting in a way that we've seen before. This is normal. Therefore, we have a high assurance that this is the, a good activity that's occurring. We don't need to do anything bad, uh, you know, to stop that.
0: Great. Great answer. Thank you very much, uh, Brandon. Good spotlight talk. Patrick, Steve, thank you. Uh, that was good insights on the on the panel. So we're running out of show. Um, if you've missed any part of today's events, uh, the show will be made av- available on most popular podcast services sometime next week. So make sure to look out for that. And um, again, one last time, I'd like to, before we sign off, just thank everybody today. A uh, big thank you to Brandon Williams for his talk. Um, Patrick, Steve, for their insight. um and you know, thank you for um for all your participation. And to you all listening at home, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Um, the podcast doesn't exist without your support, and uh, hopefully you return. you enjoyed yourself and you'll return to uh, next month, um where we're going to be in front of something very special. I'm a little bit nervous, Patrick, you know about it. We're going to be in front of a live studio audience. Um, so that's going to be very, very special. You won't want to miss that, BTS. And uh, on top of everything else, as if that was not enough, um, I don't know how the, the people behind the show pulled this off, but they, they managed to get a Pulitzer Prize uh, winning guest on the show. I'm not going to name who it is, but I promise you won't want to miss that show as well. So hopefully we'll see you there. Thanks again to our, sp- our sponsor, Ping Identity, for today's show. And as always, remember that when you're behind a shield, you're ahead of the game. Thank you very much, everybody.